0: Good evening. Welcome. Uh, tonight we're going to be doing something that we have uh, I've never done before. We're going to teach two entire books of the Bible in one evening. All 27 verses of 2 John and 3 John. Um, let's start with a word of prayer and we'll dig right into this. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for your word. We, we thank you for what your word does for us. The the truth, the reality that it brings into our our lives, the ability that it gives us to, to know the way, Lord, to know the path and to understand your heart and to understand not just truth, Lord, but the truth that is real so that we know how to live within reality in an increasingly confusing and unreal world. We just trust you for this grace. We believe you for your blessing. That's why we're here, Lord in Jesus name we pray amen well the reason i'm studying these two books together is uh, i think fairly obvious number one they're they're very short as i just mentioned 13 chap 13 verses excuse me in uh, in second john uh, 14 and third john Uh, They were also, we believe, written by exactly the same person. They were written very close in time, maybe written one right after the other. uh, And they were written from the same location. So there's a lot of overlap in these particular books. Unfortunately, uh, more or less, the writer only identifies us in both in letter. He identifies himself as simply the elder. And uh, the elder in this context refers to a spiritual position of leadership. Uh, He might have been viewed much like the bishop which is an overseer of several congregations or simply as one of the ruling leaders of a particular congregation. In this case we believe that the author was the Apostle John. And there's a lot of reasons why we think that's the case um, and most scholars agree. One of the things is that the, the Gospel of John, the letter of 1 John, the letters of 2nd and 3 John, uh, all bear amazing similarities, both in their terms of their style, uh, in terms of their linguistic structure, uh, vocabulary, some of the same words are used in exactly the same way. And even the controversies that it addresses are similar in all three of these letters that are traditionally ascribed to John. In fact ancient tradition beginning in the 2nd century uh, the church fathers, people like uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus um, and even later on in the 4th century Eusebius Uh, We refer to them as church fathers. They basically, you had the apostolic age, the first century when the apostles were still ministering and then in the second and third and fourth century uh, the spiritual leaders and the men who did most of the writing and many of the early councils and establishment of things like the Apostles' Creed and and Nicene Creed and so forth. We refer to those gentlemen as being the church fathers because they laid out in, in copious detail a lot of the doctrinal foundations of the Christian church. Saying all of that by digression what we find is they to a man basically ascribe these letters as being written by the Apostle John. So if John was the author as we believe the date for these letters has to be near the end of the first century um, some, fat, in fact, have suggested, and it makes a lot of sense, that after John was released from his exile on the Isle of Patmos, he returned to Ephesus, and that's where the letters took place. In fact, the timeline of these events for John's life kind of goes like this, that John was arrested in 95 AD by the Roman emperor by the name of Domitian. Domitian was uh, a strong believer in the gods of Rome very antagonistic towards Christianity and so he sought to eliminate the Christian church. Uh, this would have been really the second official persecution by the Roman government on a basically international level, if you will, that empire-wide. So the first uh, persecution by Rome was under Nero. And then this second one comes about 30 years later under the leadership of Domitian. And of course, all the other apostles at this time are dead. John is the only one who has survived. He's an aged man at this point. I mean, we're estimating that he could easily have been in his 80s. He may have been in his 90s or even, you know, a little bit beyond that. But nonetheless, we find that that John is, is the sole surviving leader of the Christian church. Rather than executing him, and we're not told why the decision was made, he was put on the Isle of Patmos. Now the Isle of Patmos is a Greek island off the coast of Asia Minor, very not that far from the city of Ephesus. But it's it's a pretty barren place. Even today you can visit it. You can even visit the cave that supposedly was the place that John was literally hold up while he was a prisoner there. But there's nothing there on the island. In fact in order to survive they had to bring food in because nothing really grew on this basically rock out in the middle of the ocean. And John was imprisoned there in 95 AD along with a lot of other Roman prisoners from Asia Minor. This was a, a common place for them to put people in exile. But a year later Domitian died. And after his death the new emperor a man by the name of Nerva We might call him Nervous no. He had Nerva, uh, he only lived for about two years. He reigned from 96 to 98 A.D., but it was Nerva who released John and allowed him to leave, at least according to the histories of men like Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history of the church. Uh, so the short reign of Nerva really had only one notable event and that was a fact the Apostle John was released from his imprisonment and allowed to return. And the historians tell us that he settled in the city of Ephesus. Now Ephesus had at that point become the predominant church center for Christianity. Keep in mind 20 years earlier uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed The Jews had fled and the emphasis had shifted from the Jewish nature of Christianity to the Gentile nature. This had a political dynamic for Christians because as long as Christianity was viewed as being a sect of Judaism, it was was protected because Judaism, although it differed from the religions of Rome, was granted uh, freedom of religion. They could practice their religion even though it often bumped heads with Roman uh, practices, especially the offering of sacrifices to the emperor. The Jews wouldn't do it, but they were given this exemption. So in the early days Christianity was viewed as just another sect within Judaism and the Christians were not persecuted by Rome, they were persecuted by the Jews. And the Jews were working very hard to get Christianity viewed as not part of Judaism so it would become an illegal religion and then it could be officially persecuted. They eventually succeeded particularly when Nero needed a scapegoat for the burning of Rome and as a consequence it became a religio illicita or basically uh, an illegal religion. They no longer had a right by law to practice and that became the reason why for the next 200 years they became subject to a series of sporadic persecutions but nonetheless and often of varying intensities but for the next 200 years there were a about 25 different official persecutions against Christianity by various Roman emperors. Not to mention that many times regional government governors or local governors of cities could just simply choose to do the same because there was absolutely no legal protection for Christians whatsoever. So we, we really don't even have any idea why Nerva released John other than the fact that the hand of God may have directed him whether he was aware of it or not. John is allowed to come back to Ephesus. Ephesus now has become the most populous center of Christianity in the world at that day. It was, it's almost in many ways that uh, Ephesus would have been almost like a cosmopolitan center like New York City. So that oftentimes we get this image in our mind that the church often went out and hid out in these really rural areas to avoid persecution. The fact of the matter is from Paul on through as far as we can see in the first four or five centuries, Christians really concentrated ministry on population centers, and I think they had a strategy. I think they had this concept that where people are, the chances of evangelism are better. I'm just guessing on that one, but I think it makes a little bit of sense. And I say that because sometimes Christians get the idea that, well, what we're supposed to do is avoid the population centers and all their ungodliness, and and all I can say is, if that really is hard for you to deal with, maybe that's right for you. But in terms of reaching the world, you kind of got to go where the world is. And that's why we find that the church proliferated in centers like Ephesus, major economic metropolitan cities, which also had all of the vices that was just part and parcel of the Greco-Roman world. So that even today when you go to Ephesus, right there in the center of the city, you think in the most cosmopolitan and where the center of government and all of these things are seated, you also find there are several brothels advertised openly on the street because it was not considered to be criminal And was actually considered to be part of the culture. So uh, I I was having this conversation with my 93-year-old father-in-law and he was talking about how wicked America is today. And I'm not arguing that it isn't, but what I said, but you have to get in proportion. The world that Paul lived in was far more wicked I mean, in the fact that it was just not considered to be wrong, unlike today, where we look at homosexuality and say it's no. Take it that way. We look at adultery. No, we don't do that either. We well, I guess we are just as bad. But anyway, <laughs> it's but it was it was a world that was it was full of vice, and Paul and the and the apostles they went right at it. They went right at it with the power of the gospel. So anyway, John is released. We guess around 97 A.D. He possibly, probably, most likely lived maybe for just two, three, maybe four more years because it appears that when we come into the 2nd century A.D., like 101, there's no longer any kind of historical trail for John and he may have gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, where was it written? Again, uh, the the early historians tell us that he was, it was written from the city of Ephesus where John would have been, you know, revered in a sense as the last surviving of the apostles, an eyewitness of the gospel. It's there that we believe that the gospel of John was written along with the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and where the letter of Revelation would have been published as well. So some of you who are looking at yourself and saying, you know, I'm I'm really getting up there in, in years, you know, I'm getting near the end of my life, I'm 40, 45 and, you know, I don't know that I can be useful for God. What I'd say is like Moses, we have a man here who's probably in his 80s, who came into his, his whole literary career at the end of his life and, and had his most long-lasting impact in those latter years. So don't discount your usability in God's plan too quickly. Um, but what stands out, I think, and we find that really does tie these letters together. I mentioned that the style is very similar, the, the, the vocabulary the, and uh, the, just the linguistic structure, all of these things tie together, but it also ties together very thematically. In fact, probably the most predominant theme that we find in all of the le- writings of John is this idea of truth. And I would say that this became a a major concern. We, We go back to the Gospels and we read in John 18 where it's Pilate who asks the question, what is truth? But Pilate wasn't the only one of that era who was asking that question. This was one of the central philosophical concerns of the age. Because when you have a culture that begins to lose its common morality, in other words, when everybody does what's right in their own opinion, when everybody's opinion is as, as, uh, has as much weight as anybody else's, you end up with a lot of confusion and people begin to really say, what is absolute truth, what is foundational in terms of being able to understand my place in the world and my purpose and everybody else around me and even my eternal destiny what is truth? And so one of the things we find I think find so interesting is John's heavy emphasis upon that the word truth appears repeatedly through everything that he ever wrote. Uh, and he, and part of it becomes what we think of first of all as doctrinal truth. It's in 2 John in verses one, uh, 8 and 9 of, of the letter. He says many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then he goes on to say anyone who runs ahead or Probably That's a very literal translation. It's, the phrase really probably means anybody who wanders away from the truth uh, and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God and whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So that John is really concerned with the fact that there are people who are presenting theologies that are different than those which have been traditionally embraced by the church. And he, of course, could speak authoritatively to that because he was an eyewitness, an earwitness of the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. And so as a result, he says, you have to understand that there are many who are going to come with the express purpose of distorting and perverting and even and corrupting the church through changing people's view or understanding of what is the truth. This is something that I think is important to understand when you study New Testament theology is that you find that every single writer of the New Testament except for the little book of Philemon deals with the issue of false theology, false doctrine, false teaching. It expresses a concern many times, some at great extent because that was certainly Paul's concern, other ones deal with it rather briefly. But he says there's going to be these who do this and they're not continuing in that sound doctrine that was given to us at the beginning. So that there was a dynamic in the early church just as there is in the church today of those who will profess a relationship with Christ but only have an intellectual uh, agreement, if you will, not really a life surrender because when he goes on and talks about the truth, he also talks about what I refer to as living truth. How's that differ from doctrinal truth? Well, it shouldn't. We should live what we profess. But when we don't actually believe in our hearts what we say that we believe... We live differently than what we say. Now, some people call that hypocrisy. I think that's pretty harsh because hypocrisy is consciously doing something different than what you know. But there's a lot of people who basically have been raised in a religious tradition, but when it comes to making the hard decisions of everyday life, they defer to the culture. And so as a result, they don't have a living truth. And the way that John expresses it, for example, in, in 1 John, in verse 6, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live the truth. Now, the word walk there, uh, I, my, my way of translating that word is to regulate your life. If the truth is that which I regulate my life by. That's the thing that I make the decisions. I, I use the word regulate because we confront circumstances all the time that we have to make a decision. Am I going to the left? Am I going to the right? Am I going to go up or am I going to go down? Uh, you know, am I going to touch or not touch? Am I going to taste and not t- taste? This is, fills uh, decisions of our lives a thousand times over. And many of them are so habitual and automatic we don't really have to struggle over them. But there are times when we come to moments where we have hard decisions. I remember many years ago going to a restaurant and, and having breakfast, and after I got done, I gave the, the, uh, the lady, the cashier on the way out, a $10 bill, and she gave me change. And as I was walking into my car, I was counting my change, and I suddenly realized I gave her a 10, and she gave me two 20s. And my first response was, Score! <laughs> wow what a deal I'm coming back here for breakfast every day this works so well and you know I mean I didn't, couldn't even get to the door of my car before I realized that the eyes of God were upon me at that moment I mean I just, I just knew that even though nobody knew what happened I could get away with this but God wouldn't let me now, that's how your life gets regulated because God says, know for sure in Numbers 23, 32, right? Know this for sure that your sins will find you out. I just knew I couldn't, this wouldn't work out well. I would love to say, to you, you know, I'm a man of such high moral integrity that the thought of keeping that money never entered my mind. Believe me, it entered. <laughs> it lingered. <laughs> but I just, I just, you just know. You just know there's no way this can turn out good. You just know there's no way it can turn out. That's really what motivates a lot of obedience in the child of God. You realize that disobeying or going against what you know God wants cannot produce a good result. And so I walked back in and I said, I think you made a mistake in giving me change. And she became very defensive all of a sudden. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> I'm sorry. You gave me way too much money. And I showed her what she did. And she was so thankful because I didn't even realize this. She said, I would have had to make up for the mistake. It would have come right out of my pocket. So essentially, I would have been just stealing money out of her her kids' mouths. So, you know, it's it's interesting that God knows these kind of things, but that's the idea of of living truth. John says you begin to make, you regulate the, the life, the paths that you take, the choices you make, they begin to become regulated by what you know to be truth. In 2 John, he, in verse 6, he says, It has, been, it has given me great joy to f- find some of your children walking in the truth. Again, this word, walking in the truth, this phrase, just as the Father commanded us. And this is the love, he goes on to say, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. Suddenly, we begin to see in John's letters this interchange between uh, truth, love, and joy. Now Paul had a, a, a triune phrase that he used often to describe the Christian life. He talked about faith, hope, and love. These three things, faith, hope, and love. And if you study Paul's letters, you'll find that that phrasing appears frequently throughout his comments. It was kind of a, one of his catchphrases. John has his, but his is a little bit different. His is truth, love, and joy. And what John is saying, when you walk by the truth, it will be an expression of love. Truth is always the most loving thing that we can do. And the consequence, the fruit of that is joy in your life. If you really want to live a joyful life, this is the key. We'll talk a little bit further in a moment about what does it mean to have a joyful life. But in in, in 3 John, in verses 3 and 4, once again, he says, it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth And how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking or regulating their life within God's truth. So again, the concept that it's not just having doctrinal or theological or intellectual truth and and intellectual agreement, it's having truth become so much a part of the fabric of your, the kind of the rubric of your life, if you will, that you walk in that truth. And it's not this idea of rule-keeping, because it's interesting, again, when we talk about the commandments of God, there were three different Greek words that were used to describe it. The first one was nomos, which literally meant the law, the Ten Commandments, the 613 Commandments, the regulations of the Old Testament. That's one context of nomos. That's not the word he uses here. Uh, The second word that he um, often used was um, um, dogma. And, we, and dogma is basically the, the calculation or the, the articulation of particular doctrinal truths. But when, what he uses here is a word called entole, which literally means a specific procedure of behavior. It refers to a, a living out of, of really the will of God in your life. And that's the word he uses over and over again when he talks about the commands of God. He says it's this idea that you're living out what you know to be the will of God. So one of the reasons I encourage people to read the Bible, just one of many reasons, but if you're a Christian, it's in the reading of the Bible from cover to cover with regularity and and faithfulness that you begin to incorporate these commands of God into you without really thinking about it. You know, I I think of it, when you talk about learning foreign languages, for example, let me illustrate it this way. Um, If you take a child uh, in the first 12 years of their life and expose them to a foreign language, they will learn it effortlessly. In In fact, in the first five years of life, if you just take a child and put them into any kind of linguistic environment, that child will absorb that language and speak it the rest of their life without an accent. If you learn it after 12, you'll always have an accent. Which makes no sense the way we teach foreign language when people are in high school. I mean, we got it so backwards, it's kind of sick and wrong. I remember Dr. Wildersmith, who was a, you know, he had four earned Dr. degrees in natural science, and he was talking about his kids. He says, Well, my, you know, we, we, he says, I'm British, my wife's uh, 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 Swiss, so our kids grew up speaking both English and German in the house. And then, of course, then we moved to Norway, and we lived there, and they learned Norwegian, and then we learned, learned to Turkey, and they learned to speak Turkish. And he says, So by the time they were 16, and going off to medical school, and I suddenly realized he's talking about people smarter than me. When my kids were 16 going off to medical school, they didn't have to fulfill their language requirements because they already spoke six languages. But how did he teach them those languages? He simply lived in the cultures where those languages were spoken. And it's a way that you find that a child before the age of 12 has receptors that can hear things so that i've been in parts of india where they speak tonal languages that i mean it's like they speak them up in their nasal cavities i mean it's just nonsense i don't even try. i can't even pronounce the name of the village i'm in so if i got lost i would be just really in trouble because i could never even tell them where i was from but the whole point is that One of the missionaries I was with over there one time, his child, his five-year-old child was there and was playing with the kids and was speaking the language with perfect pronunciation without even having tried because those receptors are wide open. I say that to say this, when we are born again of the Spirit in Jesus, we're like newborn babes in Jesus. And the spiritual receptors are wide open and when we read his word and we hear his truth it is absorbed into us and it becomes part of the vocabulary and part of the accent of our life. We begin to speak with a divine accent and it marks our life so that your thought patterns are not ones where I have to sit there and say, okay, what does God want me to do in this situation 99% of the time you know without even having to think about it I know what the heart of God is. I know what God's will is. I just know because I've read His word and His word has become implanted within me in a way that expresses itself with natural ease and it's not something that I'm sweating bullets in order to, to, to live out the Christian life. I'm not saying that there aren't those seasons but most of the time it's really clear. So when I use the illustration of my overpayment in the restaurant, I mean, it, it, the whole process of figuring out what I was supposed to do probably took a millisecond. I mean, it was really, really, really quick. It took me longer to explain the process than the actual process took. And I share it because I wouldn't want anybody to think I don't have a sinful, wicked nature like everybody else. Uh, well, I probably don't have to explain that to you. You probably don't know that well by now. But the point is that it's something that was so intuitive that you just can't do this because you spend time with God and God begins to write those things on your heart. That's his promise to Jeremiah anyway in Jeremiah 33. But anyway, so we have doctrinal truth, we have living truth, and then I put the third category he talks about is what I would refer to as loving truth. 2 John 5 and 6 he says, I am not writing you a new command but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. The consequence of living and walking in the truth of God is that we walk in love, and the fruit of walking in love is joy. So you can kind of work this backwards, if you will, but He says in, in 2 John 6, I have... I, I, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. What is a definition that we can use, a working definition, I think, that is helpful for joy? And I, for me, it's simply a cause of celebration. Or you might even get more pedestrian and say, the thing that brings a smile to my face. So that when John says, it brings me great joy, you know, he isn't jumping up from his wheelchair and, and doing jumping jacks and going, hallelujah, praise God, and raising his hands. He's sitting there saying, you know, the thing that just lightens my heart, brings a smile to my face, and just causes me to want to celebrate is to know that my children are walking in the truth. That's my, that's my joy. Why? Because I know that if you're walking in the truth, your life is going to be blessed. I know if you're, I'm not saying your life won't have its challenges, but it's going to be blessed. And if you don't walk in the truth, you walk in darkness, you're going to have trouble because you're not walking in in reality so that when we talk about truth and we talk about being a truth being absolute it means the truth is an expression a summary of what is real when person believes something is not true they very quickly begin to have problems because they're really trying to live in a universe that doesn't exist so that psychiatrists say that you can measure a person's mental health by the degree of separation between reality and what they believe to be true If what they believe to be true is real then they are mentally stable but if they believe something to be true that is absolutely delusional then they have trouble. That's where you have people jumping off of buildings flapping their arms trying to fly because they believe that they actually have bird powers when they don't have bird powers. It's a delusion. And that, that becomes the problem because when people believe false theologies, they start believing things about God that aren't true, and they begin to encounter difficulties. It's like the sad widow. When I was at Staff Costa Mesa, the situation was so tragic because this woman, her husband died, and to the moment of his death, she believed that God was going to give her a miracle of resurrection, and at the funeral, she brought his shoes with her so that when God raised him from the dead at the funeral, he wouldn't have to walk home in his stocking feet. And that didn't happen. And when they closed the casket, she still believed all the way to the cemetery. When they lowered the casket into the ground and began to cover it up, she had a complete mental breakdown because she believed with all of her heart because the guy on TV told her so that her husband was going to be resurrected. Now somebody could have probably short-circuit that if she would listen to it when it says it's given unto man once to die and then the judgment you know i mean we are we are all destined for death it's not god's plan in fact the psalmist said that the lord takes delight in the death of his saints why because we go home now we were in nashville last week with my son and daughter-in-law and you know we were trying to time this so that when we were there the baby would be born you know, and when I suggested that maybe she was going to be perpetually pregnant, she didn't think that was funny <laughs> she didn't want to be she you know, basically in, in her own way, she said, "I want this thing out one way or another you know and it, so it was it was just a glorious thing when that child left the security and the, and the, and the comfort of the womb and entered into this cold, glaring Bleak world that we live in to have his umbilical cord cut off and and tied in a just a vicious knot and 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 circumcised. I mean, it's it's, my goodness gracious, what is this world coming to? But I guarantee you that it's not going to be long before he's going to be very happy. He's on this side of reality, and when God looks at you and me, that's His heart. You and I may be terrified of death or we may fear it or think it's the worst thing that can happen. And it is if you don't know Jesus because you're stillborn. And it's a it's, it's it's, it's hundred times more tragic in the heart of God to see a child come in, uh, come out of this world into death. And, and that's the best way, I, painful, that may be a painful illustration for some of you and I apologize, but it's how we need to understand when somebody dies without Jesus But when a child comes out and they've come not from just the birth canal, but they've come into the eternal reality of all the riches and the wonders and the glory that are there for them, God rejoices in the same way that, that I watched my wife and I and our, my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandkids all excited about this new baby. Everybody's excited about this new, and you know, I, I know the other kids will have their time when he gets two and they'll drive him crazy, be but right now we're all excited about this. This is wonderful because we have now an ability to have a relationship with that child that did not exist when that child was still in the womb. Understand God looks with yearning at the passage from this world into his eternal presence. And sad that this poor woman, somebody didn't explain that to her. That her husband's death wasn't the end of his life and, and the beginning of the end of her life, but it was the beginning of his life and a promise of the life that was awaiting her on the other side as well. John, twice, it's interesting, both in 2 John and also in 3 John, he almost says exactly the same thing. He says, again, it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. And then he said again, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy. So one of the things we should never try to separate or allow to be separated is is truth and love and joy are all a, a triunity together. They're, they're meant to be the same. And if any one of those is missing, we need to go into our prayer closet and examine the cause. So that if there's no joy in your life, you need to really sit down before the Lord and say, God, why do I have no joy? Why is there no cause of celebration in my life? Now, I, I, I mean, understandably that we go through grievous moments and grievous seasons in our life. I mean, I'm not trying to discount that at all or to make anybody feel bad about that. But that should not be the permanent condition because no matter how bad a circumstance has overtaken my life at various seasons, I've been able to fight through and find God's plan and purpose and, and redemptive joyfulness on the other side. I know that God is doing something wonderful. And if that joy isn't there in the life. You really need to spend some time with God and say, God, open my eyes to what is robbing me of my joy. And if I find myself behaving in an unloving manner, not only will I discover that that's not going to bring me joy, but also that I'm not walking in obedience to God. Even though I may stand here and say, I'm I'm standing on the truth, that kind of attitude only has one effect. It either maims or harms. It never heals. Truth without love is never a healing agent. It's a weapon. It's like a scalpel that instead of cutting and, and bringing relief and healing, it brings wounding because it's used like a knife to stab. And so those three things have to always be together. and We need to always be willing to let God open our eyes to when we're using truth as a weapon and rather than as a a guide into how we can love one another more effectively and and, and using joy or the absence of it as a way of measuring the sincerity of our experience with God. Which brings me, those are the similarities between the book. Not much. What about the differences? Well, Try to go through this in the nine minutes, 29 seconds I have left. First of all, they're different in two who they're written to. And I, I, we think, at least. Second John is addressed to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And then in verse five, he calls her the dear lady. Now, this may in fact have been a particular Christian woman or her family and, and, or an individual female leader within one of the churches, because believe it or not, there were actually female leaders within the church. We'll touch on that a little bit in a moment. Because we find, for example, in Colossians 4.15, he talks about Nympha and the church that is in her house. He sends greetings to her. But in verse 18, when he refers to the recipients of the letter, and we translate it by the the pronoun yourselves, it's in the masculine plural tense. It's a masculine plural plural pronoun. Say that ten times real quick. that strongly suggests that the chosen lady is actually a metaphorical term referring to a sister church somewhere around or outside of Ephesus. Scholars debate about that, whether to take it literally or metaphorically. Um, I personally tend to be on the metaphor side of the equation, but, uh, but not because I have solid proof one way or another. I just like it better. In contrast, 3 John is specifically addressed to an individual. Four times he's mentioned by name uh, in verses 1, 2, 5, and 11, where he says, My dear friend, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Uh, The word friend there, a literally means somebody who is beloved, esteemed. They're your favorite. This is your BFF, you know. Uh, In fact, when you look at the Greek, that's exactly what it says, BFF. Best friends forever for those of you who aren't textually uh, enhanced. The problem is Gaius was an extremely common name in, in the Greek and Roman world. Uh, just in the New Testament alone we have four different Gaiuses that, that are, are referred to. And so it's impossible to say who this particular Gaius was, whether he was one of those four or he would have been somebody completely different. In fact, again, the historical traditions coming from uh, from people, especially like Eusebius, tells us that, that Gaius was actually the bishop of the church of Pergamum. One of the seven churches of the book of Revelation was Pergamum. And uh, that uh, he was the bishop of that church at that particular time. It's about 120 miles from the city of Ephesus. Um, but what he was concerned about in these letters is first of all, uh, I, I phrase it as simply bad doctrine versus bad behavior. Uh, Second John was concerned about bad doctrine, false teachings, uh, a form uh, similar to what we saw in First John, a, a kind of Christian Gnosticism. Uh, basically, what Gnosticism taught uh, among many many things, but one of the foundational principles of, of Gnosticism, both as a Greek, religious philosophy and later on as a Christianized philosophy. It was a kind of blending of Christianity with Gnostic thought. But it taught that matter was evil, that the physical universe that we know, our bodies, that they were sinful, they were evil, they were corrupt. And that the idea of purification came through elevating yourself into higher levels of of divine revelation by following seven steps which these teachers would uh, take you through as you gave them more and more money. But... um, They basically they looked the physical material world as evil, so the implication was, in Christian Gnosticism, that Jesus couldn't possibly have had a physical body. So the incarnation, the idea of the Word of God became flesh. When you understand that 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 controversy, suddenly uh, John 1:1 makes sense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And suddenly the Word of God became flesh. He became matter physical being. John makes this emphasis on all of his letters because he's trying to make it very clear that Jesus did in fact have a body. In fact uh, one commentator simply said that all the human form of Jesus was altogether mere semblance without any reality. This is really a particular view called docetism. And basically docetism says Jesus appeared to be just like you and me but he wasn't. And this idea is interestingly because it, it really, uh, when we look at Islam today, when Muhammad was uh, you know, beginning to form his religious system of Islam, he obviously had influences from Gnosticism. Because in Islam what the, the Quran teaches is Jesus didn't die on the cross, this was Nazi Christian thought that Jesus appeared to have a body, that he didn't actually die and that Judas was crucified in his place and Jesus walked away laughing about it because these guys are so stupid. Um, but this, is, this was really a major issue because in the understanding of the gospel God became a man that he might pay the penalty for man's sin. Well, Gnosticism didn't see the problem because they didn't believe we were sinners. They thought matter was evil, but we're not responsible because we didn't ask for this body. It was given to us. So what I do with my body isn't my, I don't have to worry about that. So I'm committing adultery. So I'm engaging in all sorts of nefarious behaviors and wrong things. It's no big deal because it's just my body. It's not me. And so, this is where John gets into the kind of the, the issue of saying, you know, there's there's love, there's truth, there's the commands of God, and all these things have to sink together. I hope that makes sense because I'm going through it very quickly. But the second thing that he he deals with that de- separates these two letters is that the, the second John deals with the, the problem of what I would call bad hospitality, and, uh, and and in contrast with third John talking about good hospitality. And what I mean by bad hospitality in Second John ten. And eleven, John says, "If anyone comes to you talking about these false teachers, and does not bring this teaching, and do not take him into your house or welcome him, anyone who welcomes him shares, literally has koinonia. That's a koinonia. It's a w- the words that's used here. It has koinonia fellowship in his wicked work. You're becoming one with him. So don't show him hospitality if he comes to you." In third John. It's, it's interesting because he's reproving uh, certain people in the church who are particularly, probably the church of Pergamum, who are refusing to show hospitality to teachers. So Second John says false teachers come, don't show them hospitality. Third John says good teachers come, you need to show them hospitality. And the reason he explains in detail, he begins with a commendation for good behavior to, to a guy. He says, dear friend, "...you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers. Even though they are strangers to you, they have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that they may work together." So on the one hand we find that this individual man by the name of of, uh, Demetrius shows up at the church and he's shown hospitality by Gaius but not by everybody because that's where he moves from commendation to condemnation. He says in verse 9 I wrote to the church but Diotrephes um, who loves to be first, loves the preeminence will have nothing to do with us. This is the gutsy guy. Here's a guy who's talking trash against the Apostle John. I mean, I'm mean, i just saying, wow. So if I come, he says, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us, not satisfied with that, but he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not intimidate, or excuse me, imitate what is evil but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil is not seen of God, has not seen God. Demetrius, who apparently is the individual that he had sent to minister to the church, is well spoken of by everyone. And even by the truth itself, we also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. Now, what's the bigger dynamic that's going on here? Well, in the ancient world, travel had few good options, especially with regards to accommodations. So we read examples in the Old Testament, in particular, of people coming into a village and sleeping in the village square. The reason they slept in the middle of the city is because they had no place else to sleep and it was safer inside the walls of a city than to sleep outside the walls of the city where all sorts of bad things could happen to you. But it wasn't a great situation. So you came and you, like the, the angels that come to Sodom, uh, Lot it, it finds them settling down in the square of the city and he invites them into his home. Now there were inns. We talk about the story of the nativity. Jesus comes and there's no room in the inn. There were these inns kind of like caravan stops where people could come, travelers who with caravans could come. But again, these were pe- places where Vice was pretty rampant. Uh, They were also dangerous for a whole other set of reasons and often costly beyond what was naturally affordable. That's the impact of the story of the Good Samaritan who takes the injured man to the inn and pays for his lodging and care until he can return. This was a major sacrifice. So that the preferred way of accommodating somebody was to have someone that you knew or someone who would invite you into their home. And that's why even today you'll find in the Middle East, hospitality is is a major value in their culture. Inviting somebody to come into your home, to eat with you, to stay in your home, that's considered to be a great honor in most of the Eastern world. And so this was the thing that you wanted. So here when they sent out these people to minister, they would expect the church to provide them accommodations and yet in the case of second timothy or third timothy john he's this uh, he's refusing to allow demetrius diotrephes refuses to allow uh, demetrius to stay in the house and forbids anybody else to do so as well Well this had greater implications because you see the challenge of being a host to a guest from out of town was not only were you obligated to bear the expense for their food and what other needs they might have, they had the right to stay as long as they felt they needed uh, and you had to provide them protection. You were responsible for their health and welfare and so that you had to feed them, care for them, and protect them from any harm that might come their way. The reason why Lot was so uh, forward in defending the angelic beings that he brought into his house because it was a shameful dishonor to have somebody come in your house and then to be assaulted by others and not protected from that danger. But also what you were doing when you took them in their home is you were endorsing them. So in 2 John he says, these false teachers come, don't show them hospitality because if you do, you're endorsing their false teaching. But when we send somebody to you, he says in 3 John, and you don't allow them in, basically you're refusing to endorse someone that we have sent to minister and to edify and to build up the church. And so he says your job, your responsibility is to welcome him and to share in his work So that's just by taking them into your house, you are being a participant, a a sharer in the thing that they were doing. It's the same concern that Paul expresses in writing to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, he said to them, he said, But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Now we look at that and say, you mean if I go down to, over to Zips and, and I see some character in there that's got a bad reputation i am not. I, I got to say, oh, we've got to go eat someplace else. No. We don't understand it in the context. In the context he's saying, you don't provide them with the hospitality, the association of becoming part of your life by inviting them into your home to be part of your life because they'll be, bring disapproval, disrepute upon the gospel. It's not like you're trying to shun them or shame them. You don't want to do anything that endorses what they're doing. I remember when I first came to pastor here and there was a, a fellowship that um, had some unusual theology. And, and um, never, you know, I never said anything about, about them uh, critically, but just you know, understood that we didn't, we didn't really endorse the things that they were doing and I remember the pastor came to meet with me and he, and he couldn't understand why I wouldn't promote his ministry and I never understand that concept anyway I thought God is our promoter but anyway but I just simply said to him I said you have to understand I will never trash talk you I'm not going to criticize you anybody but there's no way I can endorse you because of these theological positions are heresy that's where our conversation ended at that point so you know we were, we were both good with not being good but um this is, this is the kind of concept that Paul's talking about. And, and there's one last thing I'll just tie into this, that early churches met exclusively in homes. I mean, in Romans 16, when he says, uh, in verse 5, he says, greet the church that meets at their house. One of the things we find early on is that, especially when the gospel began to go into the Greek world, that Christians began to meet in homes. They didn't meet, they didn't have church building. In fact, the oldest identifiable church building in the world is in modern-day Syria today. Um, I don't know if we have that slide up there. You can skip this other stuff. It's just no nonsense anyway. But anyway, uh, 233 AD is the first. It was a house that was converted into a church. Now, if you go to Capernaum today in Israel, they'll, you can see where they call, call it Peter's house. And it's basically an octagonal uh, uh, home uh, built of stone. I, whether it was Peter there, I didn't say that Peter was here, but it has a cross chiseled into one of the stones in the walls. Apparently, this house was converted into a church, but that was like in the sixth century. So the point is that the houses became the central location, and this has led to a, a whole approach or a view today in the church that. Church buildings like we're in today are kind of, a, a, kind of an abomination or there's sin because Christians shouldn't be meeting in churches, they should be meeting in, in homes. Uh, there's only one problem with that uh, because the question isn't why did the church start meeting in buildings like this, the, the real more appropriate question is why did they stop? You see when we look at the early church in Jerusalem, they met within the synagogue the synagogue was this gathering place. We find they're in the upper room. There's 120 of them in the upper room, not in the upper house. They're in an upper room. They began to meet. The church proliferated. They have, you know 3,000 men converting in one day, not without counting women and children. And they began to meet every day in Solomon's porch, which was the, the whole eastern side of the temple of Solomon, this, this place which had become common for teaching. So the early church was actually a megachurch, that would dwindle down under persecution and that's why the reason why they met in the homes later on was because number one because of persecution they were kicked out of the synagogues and the only place they had available was the homes of the wealthy people that had large enough quarters to house the congregation but secondly most of them were extremely poor we know that half of the believers in many of the early churches were slaves and so, as a consequence, they didn't have the resources to do anything bad. And it wasn't until about the fourth century when at the Edict of Milan, when, when uh, um, Constantine and, and Licinius became, conquered the, the Roman Empire, and they decriminalized Christianity. And for the first time, Christianity became a, relig- a legal religion. Here's again where people's history is pretty weak. Sometimes there are those people saying, "Well, Constantine was the one who made Christianity the uh, the legal religion or the religion of Rome." He didn't do that. He just made Christianity legal. He said Christians are free to worship wherever they wanted. What of the first things they did? They started building buildings so they could meet together instead of having to hide within their homes. So. I throw that in there saying, I have nothing against home churches, if that's what you want. It's just that um, you very quickly hit a limit where it doesn't work anymore, and that's why you end up with buildings. It's it's convenient. I'm done. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus, that you would help your truth to penetrate into our hearts and our minds in a way that would be part of our DNA, Lord. That's what we want. We just want, you said you are write my law on their hearts, Lord. We want it written there, Lord, that it might be indelibly etched and it wouldn't be just a stony truth, but it would be a living, pumping, uh, warm, life-giving truth that lives inside of us and just flows through the entirety of who we are. Give us that grace, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close together?